All right. Um, we are studying Galatians, and we're at the end of chapter 2. Now, um, I have to admit, this is a tough passage. In fact, for about two days, I studied just trying to figure out what Paul is saying, let alone uh, how to put it into a sermon. So it took about two days to just figure out what he's saying. So do you have your brains plugged in today? Are you ready to worship the, the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay, so we need you focused here. All right, so here's the passage. Now remember, Peter and Paul had a little throwdown, a little argument about whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised and to eat kosher to be saved. And Paul lays down the law. He lays, I should say Paul lays down the gospel. I've got to be careful what I say, okay? Paul lays down the gospel. You're saved by faith, not by works. Works of this law or that law or any law. Now, I believe here he is continuing to talk to Peter. And here's what he says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's ESV also. One version says righteousness, one says justification. Okay, get it all figured out? It's pretty clear, isn't it? That's a very complicated passage. All right. So let me begin by asking you this. Have you ever heard of the term reducto ad absurdum? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a Latin phrase, and it's what people who engage in debate use. It's a form of argumentation, and here's what you're doing. You're taking your opponent's position to its logical conclusion to show how absurd it is. You're reducing their position to absurdity by stringing it out and, and pointing to its logical conclusion and saying, see how stupid that is? Okay. So I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, you're debating somebody. You believe God created the world. They say, I believe evolution explains how humans got here without a creator. So here's how you do reducto ad absurdum. You say, okay, so you believe uh, that humans got here without a creator. Where did humans come from? Well, they came from primates, apes and monkeys. Well, where did the primates come from? Well, from lower life forms. Where did the lower life forms come from? Well, from one-celled organisms. Where did the one-celled organisms come from? Well, they came from non-living matter. Well, where did all the non-living matter in the universe come from? Big Bang. So, let me get this straight. It's your position 
that all the matter in the universe one day popped into existence uncaused. And then this non-living matter turned into living matter. And then this living matter all by itself formed itself into very complex human beings with brains and nervous systems and eyes that can see in 3D and in color and brains that work like supercomputers. Is that your position? Uh Uh-huh. I believe in the more scientific explanation that there was a cause. That's reducto ad absurdum. Another one. You're talking with somebody about some moral issue. Homosexuality, abortion, you name it. And they say, don't you know there's no such thing as absolute truth? Then you say, is that absolutely true? And they say, yes. And then you say, so there is such a thing as absolute truth. And they say, no. And then you say, is that statement absolutely true? And they say, yes. And you say, so there is such a thing as absolute truth. And they say, no. And you do that for about an hour. And hopefully they'll get the point that their statement is purporting to be absolutely true in its self-contradictory, reducto ad absurdum. Okay? Paul is using reducto ad absurdum with Peter. Okay? They were both on the same page at one point. That you are justified, declared right before God by faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. They were so much on the same page that Peter was even eating with Gentiles. Why is that important? Well, the Old Testament law said Jews had to keep a certain diet. They couldn't eat Gentile food. So so Peter goes to Antioch, a Gentile town, and with the Gentile believers, he's eating pork. He's eating shellfish. He's enjoying it. Lobster dipped in butter, pretty good. Right, Peter? Right. Then the Judaizers came. Who are the Judaizers? They're the ones who say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be saved by believing in Christ alone. You need to keep the kosher laws. And those Gentiles, those filthy Gentiles, they need to be circumcised, part of the Jewish law, to be saved. So Peter, deer in the headlights, Peter, he stops eating with the Gentiles. And he pulls back. Okay, he's, he's torn down the wall of the law. Now he's building it back up. And he's not eating the shellfish and the pork anymore. All right? So Paul confronts him face to face. We've already looked at that. And here, in essence, is what he's doing today. He's saying, Peter... If the Judaizers are right, if, if, they, if the Gentiles need to keep the Jewish law to be saved, three things follow. Number one, Christ promotes sin, because he's the one who tore the law down. Christ promotes sin. Number two, Christ is not the one who sanctifies us. The law sanctifies us, not Christ. And three, Christ died for nothing. 
That's his argument here in Galatians 2. Right? So let's take a look at the first one. If the Judaizers are right, Christ promotes sin. Okay, here's what he's, what he's saying. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, so Peter, you and I have both fled to Jesus for him to save us. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we're trusting him, we too were found to be sinners. Now, in what way were they found to be sinners? They're just following Jesus. Jesus said you no longer need to keep the food laws. So how are they found to be sinners? By no longer following the food laws. And the the Judaizers would say, you're a sinner. So if in our effort to follow Christ, we abandon the food laws, and we are, at least in the Judaizers' eyes, sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? If they're right... Doesn't it follow that Christ is a servant of of sin? And before the words can even finish coming out of his mouth, he has to say, certainly not. No, don't even think about that. Christ can't be a sinner. So, we have to, to, to see that it was Christ who said, stop following the food laws. Where do we see that? Well, in Mark 7. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? No, it's not food that makes you holy. Okay? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then this is part of, this is what Mark writes. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus says, you don't need to keep the clean, unclean distinction. That was an illustration to make a point. Now that Christ has come, it's fulfilled. You don't need to keep the food laws. So Jesus is promoting sin if the Judaizers are right. Okay? There's another place where Christ and God the Father uh, make it clear that you don't need to keep the food laws. Remember in Acts, Acts 10, Peter's up on the roof in Joppa, one of my favorite cities in Israel, right? Right by the seacoast there. Um, He's up on the roof, and in a vision, God lets down a sheet from heaven full of unclean animals. And God says to Peter, take up and eat. And Peter, a good God-fearing Jew, says, no, I've never eaten unclean food. So God lets down a sheet a second time. Take up and eat. And he says, no, I've never done this. Third time. Finally, Peter gets the idea. Wait a minute. Jesus is abolishing the food laws. Why? So I can go to a Gentile's home named Cornelius, preach the gospel, and eat with him. The kingdom of God is expanding from Jews with a certain diet to now include the Gentiles. And to do that, we've got to get rid of kosher food laws. Jesus is a sinner promoting sin if the Judaizers are right. In essence, Paul is saying, Peter, you choose. Who's more holy? The Judaizers with their food laws or Jesus who says you no longer need to keep the food laws? Okay? Now, um, I, could, I could say end of point one right there. But I want to go a little deeper. Are, are you following me? Okay. You want to dig some, you want to go deeper or you want to stop there? 
Oh, deep. We can, we can handle it. Bring it. Bring it. Okay, here we go. Where's Ryan? Oh, he's teaching preschool. Okay. Because he would say, bring it. I can handle it. Right? He's probably teaching the same stuff back there in preschool. Right? He's like, he's got a plate full of unclean food. Eat it. He wouldn't eat it, though, would he? He wouldn't eat pork. No. Okay. Hi, Ryan. We're talking about you. <laughs> okay. Once I told Ryan, I am on the cabbage diet. He just about blew a ga- gasket. He's, the cabbage diet. Why can't you just eat normal? I'm like, okay. So, here's the question. Oh, by, by the way, um, Paul is saying, if the Judaizers are right, then Christ is a sinner. Perish the thought. Christ is not the sinner. I'll tell you who the sinner is. For if I rebuild what I tore down, if I rebuild the, the kosher laws after tearing them down, I prove myself to be the transgressor. I'm the one who's the sinner, is what he's saying. If I rebuild, like you, Peter, rebuilding the food law. That's, that's the train of thought. Now, here's where I want to go deeper. How can Jesus abolish the food laws when he said he didn't come to abolish the law? Okay, now, by the way, this is like theologians have volumes written about this question. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But isn't he abolishing the food laws? Okay, here, here's where it gets a little deep. Try to follow this, right? The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, was a package of laws. Moral laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, okay? Given, packaged for a specific ethnic people, Israel, right? In fact, some of those laws is what formed them into a unique, specific people. Now, the package can change, but the moral laws can't change. In fact, in Romans, it says, they, the Gentiles, show that the works of the law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, even the non-Christian, even the, the Muslim jihadist knows right from wrong because he's born with God's moral law written on his heart. Okay? So the moral law has to stay the same no matter how the law gets, gets packaged. But the external packaging can change when God makes a new covenant with people. Now, the ceremonial laws, you could say they're abolished, but a better way to say it is they're not abolished, they're fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say I give you a ticket, and on that ticket... It says, good for one free car. Okay? And it's got a picture of the car. I said, now don't lose that ticket. You guard it and you carry it around. You put it in your wallet. You put it in your purse. You sleep with it. You love your ticket. And then one day, I show up with a brand new, I don't know what, Ferrari. Okay? And I go, Hank, give me the ticket. Here's the keys. You go, no, I don't want to give up my ticket. Why not? 
The ticket is just a picture. It's fulfilled in the car. So what do we do with the ticket? We can rip it up. But are we abolishing it? No, we're not really abolishing We would abolish it if I said, rip it up and you don't get a car. You fulfill it when you rip it up and you get the car. Christ is the car. We've got him. We don't need the pictures anymore. We don't need the ticket anymore. Christ fulfills all the pictures of the ceremonial law. He is the the priesthood. He is the sacrifice. He is all the festivals. You don't need the pictures when the reality is here. Now, one subset of the ceremonial laws were the laws of separation that set Israel apart. Don't eat certain food. You can't mingle with Gentiles. With the coming of Christ, the people of God is no longer ethnic Israel. It includes all nations. Rip up the food laws because they're fulfilled in Christ, in his new people. The Old Testament predicted that God would make a new covenant. The new covenant is what Jesus brought. The moral laws are resurfaced in the new covenant, but the pictures have been fulfilled in Christ. So has the Old Testament law been abolished? Well, in one sense, no, it's been fulfilled. In another sense, yes, it's been abolished, but repackaged for a new people, okay? lot in that little thing we just covered right there, but hopefully that will help you make sense of the Old Testament law and some of the New Testament statements about it hasn't been abolished, but it has been abolished, and it's, it's a both-and kind of thing, all right? So bottom line that I want you to see is if the Judaizers are right, it makes Christ a promoter of sin. Now let's move on to number two. If the Judaizers are right, Christ is not the one who sanctifies you. He's not the one who cleans you up. Okay, If the Judaizers are right, then it's our efforts to keep the law that makes you more holy. And it boils down to, here's the gospel. Here's the law. Try harder. Come on, people. Try harder. You can do it. And that's what you get in a lot of churches. Law, morals, moralism. Now, make a resolve to go out and try harder this week doesn't work. didn't work for the Jews. It didn't work for the Pharisees. It didn't work for Paul, who was a Pharisee. And it won't work for you. Paul gives us some insight as to how a Pharisee thinks, because he used to be one. In Philippians 3, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay? I'm going to give you my credentials for why I'm acceptable before God. Okay? Um, circumcised on the eighth day. Eighth day. Not the seventh, not the ninth, the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I'm a Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin. It's one of the faithful tribes down south there with Judah. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Remember when, when uh, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, how are you doing at keeping the law? And he goes, oh, I've kept it perfectly all my life. Paul could have said that too. Kept it perfectly all my life. 
have observed the law perfectly. If you're all about externals, if you're all about ceremonies, if you're all about going to synagogue on time and keeping all the externals, but when Paul met Christ, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When I met Christ, I saw my heart was black. I used to think I was pretty good before God, keeping all the nitpicky rules. But when I, I met Christ, I realized I'm a hypocrite. Anybody can keep the externals and all the little ditties that we, we, we do to, to, to impress others with our religiosity. But I met Christ and I was convicted of my, in Romans 7, that I was a coveter. And I'm a, as Isaiah realized, I'm a foul-mouthed person and that comes out of the heart. So what did he do? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I stopped trusting, which one's righteousness here? My own self-righteousness. I stopped trusting in my own self-righteousness. I abandoned this and now I'm trusting in Christ. Am I sitting on the right one? Okay. Now I'm trusting Christ. He gives me His righteousness. So, in Galatians 2.19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What does it mean that he died to the law? ESV study note says this, meaning that he no longer lives in the realm of trying to gain justification by obeying the law, and therefore the law can place no more demands on him. He, he is leaving this way of life, this stool, and he's going over here trusting in Christ. Then he says, so that I might live to God. What does that mean? I live my new life of holiness not doubling down on my ability to keep the law, but I live by faith in Christ. And that's what he says in verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. You see, his death on the cross becomes your death. Your sins have been paid for. You are crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live, but Christ lives in me. And how do you, how do you live out the Christian life? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave him. Notice there's personal... When Paul looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees that Christ loved him and gave himself for him. And now I live, Christ lives through me by faith. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me just ask you a question. Do you realize that your sanctifier, your cleaner upper, is a person, not a list of rules? Do you realize that your sanctifier is a person living in you, Christ, not just a list of rules 
that you're trying to double down on? That's news to a lot of Christians. What? Christian life isn't just a bunch of rules where I try harder? No. Now, there's rules. But that's not where the power is. The power is in trusting Christ and letting Christ live through you. Now, don't worry, this is not a let go and let God concept where you just passively do nothing. Okay? Here's how it works. Okay? Let's, say, um, let's say somebody upsets me. Okay? And I, this week, um, I had oral surgery. They drilled down into my jaw and stuck a metal post in there. Okay? So I've got this like raging headache. So I'm upset with a lot of things that don't even matter. The leaves fell on my lawn. They're not even, it's not even the neighbor's tree. It's my own tree, but I, I'm, I'm upset at the neighbor for my own leaves falling. You know, so, um, all right, so um, somebody upsets me. What do I do? Now, if I'm living in the flesh, I'm, I'm probably going to have it out with them. What does it mean to, to let Christ live through me? Lord, I, I need your help. Um, I want to give him a piece of my mind, but I want to submit to you. And I know you're living in me and you give me the power and you give me the direction. What would you have me do? Now, he guides. How? Through scripture. Some people would say, he talks to me directly. I don't get that. I don't get flying owls telling me what to do. But I do get, when I submit to Christ in me, he brings to mind scripture. A lot of times I I, I think of this one. I believe it's the Holy Spirit having me think of, for example, Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What are you so upset about? Don't be anxious. Well, why, why should I not be anxious? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Oh, yeah. All these birds. God takes care of them. He's in sovereign control of their lives. Guess what? He's in sovereign control. Thank you for reminding me that while I feel like things are out of control, things are not out of control. Then another verse comes to mind. Remember, guys, when we were studying James, James 1, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Yes, you're right. I was going to let him have a piece of my mind. This is not righteous. Thank you for reminding me that this is going nowhere. Okay. But, but what about... Then Romans 8.28 comes to mind, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his prayer. It's all things, he's working it. This is not out of control. I can operate in a calm manner, filled with the Spirit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for working in me. And I'm trusting Christ. Okay? 
It's a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of, of letting Christ live through you. Now, you say, but aren't these verses kind of like laws? Aren't you doubling down on the law? Well, there are laws. There are commands. Okay, But here's the question. Whose eyes? Who, who are your eyes? Who's your, your eyes, who are they on? Are they on Christ or the law? And I like to give the illustration of the quarterback who fades back. He's going to pass. And he's got his primary receiver. It's usually Marshall because he's nine foot two. And he can catch. Marshall's my number one receiver. My eyes are on him. Now, out of my peripheral view, I've got two other receivers. Jeffrey, he usually does a pretty good route. And then if all else fails, there's the tight end, Olsen. He's pretty good, right? Bennett, Olsen. Who's Olsen? Oh, man, you don't. You, you do not mess up a bear illustration in this church. Bennett, I'm going to go back and sit down on my self-righteousness again here. No. Your primary focus is Christ. He's your sanctifier. He died for you. He loved you as he hung on the cross. He cleaned you. Yeah, we've got these other receivers, the laws, the commands. But once you make them primary, you're back on your stool of self-righteousness again. Okay? That's how it all fits together. Now, one last thing we want to cover. If the Judaizers are right, Christ died for nothing, for no good purpose. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Do you think God would send his son to die an agonizing, humiliating death on a cross if there was some other way for humans to attain righteousness, to attain justification? No. He, he wouldn't send his son to do that. You know, I, I, I thought of that movie. Remember the movie 27 Hours where the guy, he's climbing around on the rocks and a boulder falls on his arm and he tries everything to get out and he can't. He pulls out a knife. He cuts off his arm and he survives. What if after he cuts off his arm, he leans against a rock and it falls over? You go, oh, I should have tried that. I mean, what? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> what? Waste of an arm, right? If there was a way for you to keep the law to get into heaven, Christ would not have needed to come. But he came and he died. And it's the only way. Now, follow this. Because of our inability to keep the law, Christ had to die if we were to be saved. Now, think about this. If our imperfect law-keeping couldn't get us into heaven before Christ came, do you really think you need to add your imperfect law-keeping to Christ's perfect 
work after he has come. Because of our inability to keep the law, salvation has to be 100% of grace. Grace is a gift. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's, It's all Christ or nothing. Okay? Once you add your works to Christ's perfect work, it's no longer grace. Here's what Paul says in Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That destroys Catholicism right there. If it's truly grace... It can't be Christ plus any works, or it's no longer grace. Right there, that's it. Done. Whole system comes crumbling down on that one verse. And the new perspective. Well, it might be a combination of faith plus your life, and uh, your final justification is on the basis of, yes, your faith, but you... No. If it's grace... There's no works, or it's no longer grace. Why? Because if you add your polluted efforts to appease God to Christ's perfect work, it is now diluted perfection. The gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's finished work alone. Is that the gospel you are trusting in? Let's pray.